Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Oh my goodness, uh, after a whole bunch of technical difficulties <laughs> to get this show going... We're back, and welcome back to Dark Poutine. I'm Mike Brown, your creator and host, and uh, my guest host, Matthew. Hello. How are things this week, Matthew? 10 out of 10. How are they with you, except for your shitty computer? <laughs> um, pretty good. I think I need a new <laughs> computer do. that's not shitty. Absolutely. Uh, just a bit of a teaser before we continue. After the episode, I have an announcement related to the sale of my upcoming mm. book. You're such a tease. So stay tuned. The views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate, Global News, nor their parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Our content is often intense and some listeners may find it disturbing. We're not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We're two ordinary Canadian schmoes chatting about crime in the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. This is your brain on poutine. It is. Definitely is. <laughs> In an effort to curtail social ills like alcoholism, family violence, and other unsavory behaviors, religious and puritanical proponents of the temperance movement demonized alcohol throughout the 19th and early 20th centuries. After numerous U.S. states had become dry, outlawing the production and sale of alcohol in the years prior, in 1919, the United States ratified the 18th Amendment to their Constitution which banned the manufacture, sale, or transportation of intoxicating liquors within the country's borders. As hoarded supplies quickly began to run dry over the next 10 years, Americans looked outside their borders to keep the liquor flowing into the country. Scores of Canadians stepped up, flouting the laws to move alcohol across the 49th parallel. Many were entrepreneurs with a daredevil spirit and a means of transportation, and a desire to make a quick buck but others were psychopathic, dangerous, mob-connected killers. We'll talk about a few of those here. This is Dark Poutine episode 172, Prohibition, Canadian Rum Runners and Bootleggers. According to the MobMuseum.org's interactive website on Prohibition, it was women, many whose husbands and fathers were violently abusive alcoholics, who led the temperance movement which began early in the 1800s. Quote, Women in particular were drawn to temperance in large numbers. Temperance reformers blamed demon rum for corrupting American culture and leading to violence, immorality, and death. 
the members of the temperance movement celebrated the passing of the 18th Amendment no doubt with a big cup of tea and hearty handshakes. I doubt much hugging was allowed. The National Prohibition Act, informally known as the Volstead Act, was enacted to carry out the intent of the 18th Amendment. The three distinct purposes of the Act were 1. To prohibit intoxicating beverages such as liquor, beer, and alcohol. 2. To regulate the manufacture, production, use, and sale of high-proof spirits for other than beverage purposes. 3. To ensure an ample supply of alcohol and promote its use in scientific research and development of fuel, dye, and other lawful industries. Before we go too far down the road bashing the United States, calling them a nation of overly conservative, short-sighted, and intolerant people, we have to look in our own backyard. Canada, too, has had its history of alcohol prohibition, some of it during the same period as that of prohibition in the United States. For example, indigenous peoples in Canada were subject to prohibitory alcohol laws beginning with the Indian Act of 1876 and for more than a hundred years afterward. From Robert A. Campbell's Making Sober Citizens, The Legacy of Indigenous Alcohol Regulation in Canada, 1777 to 1985, as published in the Winter 2008 Journal of Canadian Studies, put out by the University of Toronto Press. Quote, From the late 18th century on, the British tried to regulate the sale of alcohol to Aboriginal peoples. Once colonial Canadians acquired responsibility for Aboriginal affairs, they promoted assimilation. Aboriginal peoples would become citizens, but they had to demonstrate sobriety first. The 1876 Indian Act entrenched complete prohibition. Indians could drink only after they ceased to be Indians. After the Second World War, most Aboriginal leaders demanded access to alcohol as part of their campaign for equality without assimilation. Many non-Aboriginal Canadians supported these efforts. Some argued on the basis of justice, while others, ironically, claimed that equal access would promote assimilation. In the 1950s, the federal government began to dismantle Aboriginal liquor prohibition, but the government remained committed to assimilation until the 1970s. By the 1980s, Court decisions in the Charter of Rights made Aboriginal-specific liquor legislation untenable, and the federal government transferred that responsibility to ban councils. Yeah, you heard that right. The 1980s. Not that long ago. According to the Canadian Encyclopedia, quote, The Canada Temperance Act, Scott Act, of 1878 gave local governments the local option to ban the sale of alcohol. In 1915 and 1916, all provinces but Quebec prohibited the sale of alcohol as a patriotic measure during the First World War. End quote. Most provinces repealed their bans in the 1920s, although alcohol was illegal in Prince Edward Island from 1901 to 1948. Again, from the Canadian Encyclopedia, quote, It had been thought that the extension of voting rights to women would sustain prohibition, since it was believed that women were sympathetic to the cause. However, referenda of the 1920s, in which women had the vote, showed consistent decline of support for prohibition. The temperance movement was the creature of a society that was already fading when its prohibition victories were won. End quote. As gangsters in the United States began looking at ways to capitalize on the alcohol ban, 
They looked north across the border and began making connections here in Canada with people willing to help them acquire the booze that so many Americans still wanted. One of those mobsters was none other than the most famous U.S. gangster of all, Alphonse Gabriel Capone, a.k.a. Al Capone, a.k.a. Scarface. He ruled the Chicago underworld, running booze from Canada into the U.S. throughout Prohibition until his arrest and subsequent trial on charges of tax evasion beginning in 1929. Later on, we'll get more into Al Capone and his top man in Canada, the gangster and whiskey king Rocco Perry, and his partner, his wife, Bessie Starkman. But first, let's learn about some less famous Canadian rum runners. Booze continued to pour into the United States, much of it by boat. From St. Pierre and Miquelon, a French archipelago, south of the island of Newfoundland, Europe, the West Indies, and of course Canada. Captain Jack Randell was born on January 1, 1879 in Port Rexton, Newfoundland. Jack was the son of John and Mary Randell. According to NewfoundlandShipwrecks.com, quote, He enlisted in the British Army during the Boer War and returned to Newfoundland after it was over and became captain of some fishing vessels at Labrador. When World War I began, he enlisted in the Navy, serving in the North Sea and later taking command of a naval patrol fleet as lieutenant commander. He was awarded the Distinguished Service Medal early in the war and later the Croix de Guerre. Service to Queen and Country was a family affair. Captain Randell had a sister named Mary Patience, who served as a nurse during World War I. After the war, Randell returned to Newfoundland with more medals. Having been decorated at Buckingham Palace by King George V himself, Randell saw an opportunity to cash in on his seagoing experience by way of U.S. Prohibition. He returned to sea in 1922, this time as a rum runner, captaining many sailing vessels during his career as a smuggler. From ClassicBoats.org, quote, Rum running to the United States was a game of cat and mouse or hide and seek with U.S. Customs and U.S. Coast Guard. If a ship was caught with liquor within the territorial waters, it would be seized along with its cargo. Also during Prohibition, a treaty was signed between Great Britain and the United States to deal with rum runners. End quote. A seasoned, fearless sailor and naval captain, Randell was versed in all the ocean could throw at him, as well as the hidden coves along the coastline, making him a frustrating opponent for any Coast Guard vessel foolhardy enough to give chase. There were perils other than the authorities. As the old saying goes, there's no honor among thieves. From Ed Butt's book, Rum, Blood, and Treasure, quote, On one occasion, when a gang of hoodlums tried to hijack his cargo, Randell used a boat's tiller as a cudgel, and put to flight any thugs he didn't knock out. In another incident, the boat in which Randell and an American bootlegger were ferrying cargo ashore was swamped by a heavy swell. While the American cried in terror, Randell bellowed, Hell, kids swim in this kind of sea in Newfoundland. Crooked New York cops shook Randell down for money. City-bred bootleggers who didn't know a thing about the sea expected them to sail untrustworthy vessels in foulest of weather. Worst of all, they swindled him out of money. In 1927, Rendell quit. Rendell had had enough of the smuggling game. Although it was lucrative, it was too dangerous, and it seemed just a matter of time before he'd be caught and thrown into American jail. Or worse yet, dead after some altercation with pirates after the valuable goods he was hauling. Enough was enough. 
When a man came calling in 1928 with an offer to run booze as the captain of a schooner out of Lunenburg, Nova Scotia called the I'm Alone, Jack initially refused. But money talks, and the group had a plan which assured Jack about his safety. From Rum, Blood, and Treasure, quote, The visitor explained that things had changed. Big syndicates had driven out most of the small-time hoodlums. The Montrealers Rendell would be working for had developed an efficient, professional, and foolproof system. They would handle the financial transactions and had all the legal points covered. Rendell's job was to deliver cargo to a specific location and to have no contact with independent operators. As long as he kept out of the American territorial waters, he had no reason to be concerned about the U.S. Coast Guard. He would be well paid in whatever manner he chose. End quote. Again from ClassicSailboats.org. Quote, In November 1928, Captain Jack Rendell took command of the two-masted schooner, I'm Alone. The ship was some 200 tons, gross weight, capable of carrying 6,000 cases of liquor. The American authorities were familiar with this vessel's history as a rum runner and were keeping an eye out for her. During the first few months as captain, Rendell was successful in bringing liquor from St. Pierre and Belize, British Honduras, to waters outside American territorial waters. There, cargo was unloaded to ships that came to meet him in what was called Rum Row, end quote. The U.S. Coast Guard cutter Walcott caught up with Captain Jack and the I'm Alone in the Gulf of Mexico off the coast of Louisiana on March 22, 1929. After sailing from Halifax days before, the schooner was now returning from Belize loaded with liquor. The Walcott came alongside, its captain ordering Rendell to heave to and allow I'm Alone to be boarded by he and a contingent of Coast Guard sailors. Rendell complied. According to liveabout.com, quote, heaving to is an essential sailing skill every sailor should learn. With this simple technique, you can stop the boat in a controlled manner without having to stay at the helm. It can be a valuable skill for managing a storm because it allows you to lock the boat at a safe angle to wind and waves and go below to ride it out. Some sailors like to heave to simply to calm the boat before lunch. End quote. The Walcott's captain boarded I'm Alone and aggressively told Rendell that he was caught smuggling booze in contravention of the rum-running treaty between the U.S. and Britain. The Coast Guard captain told Rendell he would have to surrender I'm Alone. Thanks to Captain Jack's expert knowledge of navigation, he knew where he was and was well aware of maritime laws and that he was outside U.S. waters. The Coast Guard was out of their jurisdiction. The red-faced U.S. captain returned to the Walcott and Randall simply began to sail away. The Walcott fired on I'm Alone as she sailed off, doing only minor damage to the ship, but now Randall was more determined than ever to escape the Walcott. The Coast Guard cutter kept pace following I'm Alone for days as she headed out further into the Gulf of Mexico. Another Coast Guard cutter, the Dexter, joined the hunt and the captain of that cutter also ordered Randell to heave to and allow himself to be boarded. This time, Randell was having none of it. He was in the right, he thought, and was breaking no laws due to his position far out in the Gulf. According to Canadian Geographic, in fact, the boats were a full 321 kilometers offshore 
and the U.S. Coast Guard's jurisdiction ended at 19 kilometers from the U.S. coast. It was there that the captain of the Dexter decided to sink. I'm alone. I'm alone, her captain and crew were fired upon with sailors' rifles first and then mounted machine guns on the Dexter's deck. The schooner was shot up but continued to flee unhindered. Now even more frustrated, the captain of the Dexter then ordered the use of its deck-mounted cannon, firing four-pounder explosive shells at the waterline of I'm Alone. The schooner was no match for the cannon. Those shots did the trick, tearing massive holes in the schooner that now began to sink by the bow. As I'm Alone slipped below the waters of the Gulf, Captain Rendell and his other seven crew members abandoned ship and swam for it. Seven of the sailors aboard the I'm Alone, including Rendell, were picked up and shackled and taken to jail in Louisiana, where they would stand trial. The I'm Alone's French-Canadian bosun, Leon Mangi, was the only casualty that day. He drowned before he could be rescued. The sinking of a Canadian ship by the U.S. Coast Guard created an international incident, and Canada and U.S. relations were tense for some time. According to CanadianGeographic.ca, quote, In 1935, a trial was held and arbitrators from both countries agreed that it was a wrongful sinking. The commissioners of the case concluded that the admittedly intentional sinking of the suspected vessel was not justified. And although the I'm Alone was a rum runner, the act of sinking the ship by officers of the U.S. Coast Guard was an unlawful act. The U.S. was required to formally apologize and, in respect of the wrong, paid the sum of $25,000 to His Majesty's Canadian government. Rendell was given $7,906 and Amanda Mangi, wife of the deceased crewman Leon Mangi, received $10,185 in compensation for her loss. Rendell, of course, went back to what he loved and returned to the sea for a time piloting various vessels, but leaving smuggling to other sailors. As ill health caught up with him, he retired in 1941 and died three years later. And we'll take a break right here. And we're back. Uh, What are your thoughts on the episode so far, Matthew, specifically Captain Randell? And the I'm Alone. I'll get to Randell in a moment. Okay. Prohibition. Yes. So naive. Right. And so sinister at the same time. Okay. You know, we just actually came out of Prohibition for Cannabis in Canada in, in, Canada in 2018, right? That's and right. I'll, yeah. I'll talk about that at the end of the show. Mm-hmm. Um, but to show my hand a little bit, I'm a firm believer in freedom of choice. Uh-huh. And especially when it comes to our own bodies and our own minds. So you're more of a libertarian than anything. Yeah, small L. Yeah, small L. Small L. And, you know, people might go, you know, because if I don't have sovereignty over my own body and my own mind, then I have no rights whatsoever. Yeah, it's true. And, um, yeah, so all the people that are like, oh, but the social ills that it causes. Well, deal with the social ills. Like, okay, it's sexism and men thinking they have dominion over women, which causes you know, the, the abuse in the house, right. Al- alcohol is a part of it, yep. but just because some people can't handle alcohol, yeah, it's like, you know, I, I have a dad bod, I'm overweight. You yeah. know, do you want me to like stop everyone from having cake? Yeah. Well, no. no. Right. Uh, but to me, Randell is like, okay, analogy here. He's like Han Solo. 
Okay. Right. And the, a freedom fighter in the rebellion sort of thing. Right. And uh, the I'm Alone, which is a great name. I expected Macaulay Culkin to be like yeah. the captain, is, is like the Millennium Falcon. And oh. the captain of the Walcott is like Emperor Palpatine and a Star Destroyer. Oh, dear. So when you're telling that story, I was hearing pew, 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 pew. Yeah, <laughs> um, there was a lot of pew, pew. I'm absolutely rooting for Randall when you were telling that story. Yeah. Yeah, he's an interesting character. And, mm. uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't class him as an outlaw. I'd just class him as a guy who's, you know, trying to make some cash. Yeah, absolutely. You know, open. There's a opening up in the market. Let's let's go for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting how we, uh, how criminalizing something turns people into criminals. Surprise, surprise. Right? It's like don't download this video or don't <laughs> download those MP3s. So every child in the 2000s downloading Eminem, <laughs> the, the hippity hop MP3s <laughs> was a criminal. The hippity hop. All of them could have gone to jail for 12 years and been slapped with $500,000 fines. Too funny. Anyway, back to the show. In 1923... In a nondescript Hungarian restaurant in Toronto at the corner of Young and Bloor Streets, a 24-year-old reporter for the Toronto Star named Ernest Hemingway, yes, that Ernest Hemingway, met with a well-known Italian gangster, rum runner, and bookmaker named Rocco Perry. Over a meal of smoked sausages and onion dumpling soup, the pair chatted. According to Gord Stanky's book, Mobsters and Rum Runners of Canada, K.G. Rocco Perry told Hemingway little the little gangster neatly dodged the reporter's questions about Perry's involvement in prostitution, gambling, and drugs. From Mobsters and Rum Runners of Canada, quote, Hemingway asked about Perry's involvement in a gangland-style execution in Hamilton involving two rival bootlegger thugs, Joseph Boitovich and Fred Janess, who were trying to move in on his turf. Hey, I never killed nobody. I hate violence, he told Hemingway. All I do is run a few numbers and make good whiskey for the thirsty folks. Perry called himself King of the Bootleggers and relished being called Canada's answer to Al Capone. Rocco Perry was the head of the Calabrese mob in Ontario, and he was a nasty bit of business. He was not a big guy, standing just five foot four inches tall, but he was built like a tank and had huge, powerful hands. Rumor had it that he'd broken a man's neck barehanded in an argument over a bet on baseball. Rocco Perry was born in Pleti. Calabria, Italy, on December 30th, 1887. He immigrated to the United States in 1903, then to Canada in 1908, when he was 21. Rocco was living at a boarding house run by a family of Polish-Jewish immigrants when he fell in love with the landlord's wife and mother of two, Bessie Starkman. The two began a torrid affair that soon culminated in Bessie and her two kids moving in with Rocco Perry in St. Catharines, where he'd secured a job helping to build the Welland Canal. When the Canadian government cut funding to the canal project during the First World War, Rocco found himself unemployed. Over the next couple of years, Rocco worked in a bakery at a local grocery store and had a stint as a macaroni salesman for the Superior Macaroni Company. Rocco hated those square jobs and was looking for a more exciting way to make some cash. When the Ontario Temperance Act came into effect on September 16, 1916, Rocco Perry and Bessie Starkman saw dollar signs. 
Bessie, having run a successful boarding house for years, was the real business brain behind the bootlegging operation that Rocco and Bessie built using Rocco's mob connections and willingness to do just about anything to turn a quick buck. Rocco was connected to black-hand extortionists who shook down legitimate businesses many Italian-owned for protection money. The Black Hand Society, Mano Nera, was a term coined by an American journalist to describe a criminal organization brought to North America by Italian immigrants in the 1880s. It didn't take long before the couple had earned enough to secure themselves a larger home for their family in Hamilton. Americans were a thirsty bunch. It was then that Rocco and Bessie diversified, and they began investing some of the profits of their smuggling operations into running prostitution, gambling, and later on, narcotics. Perry's rumored stateside connections included the aforementioned Al Capone in Chicago, and another famous mobster, Frank Costello, head of the Luciano Crime Syndicate in New York City. The mob bosses were coy about their connections with Rocco Perry. According to Marty Gervais' book, The Rum Runners, a Prohibition Scrapbook, when Capone was asked if he knew Perry, he said with a grin, Why, well, I don't even know which street Canada is on. Although there are many claims that Capone himself had several hideouts in Canada, RCMP stated that officially there is no evidence that the famous mobster ever set foot on Canadian soil. Interestingly, Capone's connections in Canada continue with claims that after his release from Alcatraz, where he'd done his time for tax evasion, riddled with and driven mad by syphilis, Capone was rumored to have helped with the construction of a hideout cabin in Ontario. Apparently, he had stayed there on and off before his death from bronchopneumonia in January of 1947 at his Miami Beach retreat. Rocco Perry was running trainloads of booze, invoiced as turnips, across the border to Detroit, Chicago, and New York, mostly through Windsor. Dirty cops were paid well to look the other way as the trains ran back and forth. Rocco and Bessie were shrewd. Although it was legal to manufacture and export booze, at the time it was illegal to sell it in Ontario. So Rocco and Bessie maximized their profits by, quote, re-importing some of it back into Ontario. Despite Rocco's infidelity, he'd fathered a child with another woman who later died by suicide, Bessie Starkman stuck by her man. She knew she needed his muscle to keep the business going. Of course, there was violence, too, all in the name of cementing Perry and Starkman's business in the region. On May 10, 1922, the boss of the Scaroni crime family, Dominic Scaroni, was shot dead on Lewiston Road after being invited to a meeting of organized crime figures in Niagara Falls. Scaroni's brother, Joe, was murdered months later, also by men linked to Perry, but there was never any evidence linking Perry himself directly to the murders. With the Scaroni brothers eliminated, Perry formed an alliance with the Seriani crime family to keep the Ontario market out of the hands of the Magadino crime family in Buffalo, New York. As early as 1922, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police suspected Perry and Starkman of, quote, dealing in narcotics on a large scale. In 1924, ever the chatty mobster, Rocco Perry sat down again for another exclusive interview with a Toronto Star reporter. This time it was Dave Rogers who was invited to Bessie and Rocco's impressive home at 166 Bay Street South. Again, Perry and his wife admitted their involvement in the bootlegging game. Perry, again, referred to himself as the king of the bootleggers. When questioned about violence, Perry said, 
My men do not carry guns. If I find that they do, I get rid of them. It's not necessary. I provide them with high-powered cars. That's enough. If they cannot run away from the police, it's their own fault. But guns make trouble? My men do not use them. End quote. When pressed about the illegality of smuggling booze in the law, Perry had an answer for that, too. He said, quote, The law? What is the law? They don't want it in the cities. They voted against it. It's forced upon them. It's an unjust law. I have the right to violate it if I can get away with it. I shall do it in my business until I get caught. Am I a criminal because I violate a law that people do not want? About Perry's code of honor regarding the murder of a fellow human being who had crossed him, Perry said, I would not kill him. I'd punish him. That is the law of the Italians. We do not go to the police and complain. That is useless. We take the law into our own hands. I would kill a man on a question of honor, but not if he merely informed on me. We believe that we have the right to inflict our own penalties. Sometimes it's necessary to kill a man, but I have never done it, and I don't want to. End quote. From the Wikipedia entry on Perry, quote, Perry typically shipped his illegal alcohol into the U.S. overland, but also owned a boat for crossing Lake Ontario. He had a limited business relationship with a bootlegger, Ben Kerr, who also owned a home on Bay Street. Kerr was described by some as the king of the Lake Ontario rum runners. Kerr was operating within Perry's territory, but the latter required Kerr to smuggle raw American alcohol into Ontario and may also have allowed Kerr to sell alcohol in a certain part of New York State in return for payment of a commission. These ventures enabled Kerr to expand his operations and to remain a solid customer of distilleries such as Gooderham and Wart's and Corby's. Kerr and his boat, Pollywog disappeared in February 1929. Weeks later, his body and some wreckage from his boat were found on the shore of Lake Ontario near Colburn. Based on his research, author C.W. Hunt theorized that Perry was likely responsible for Kerr's death, perhaps using his own more effectively armored boat, the Uncas. Hunt conceded that there were two possible causes, misadventure, a marine accident, as stated by the coroner, or an act by the Stodd brothers with their well-armed armored boat, end quote. Perry and Starkman lived a lavish lifestyle. In spite of that, as is common from the era, Rocco Perry and his wife were tax dodgers too, with Rocco paying only $13.30 in income tax in 1926 from his macaroni sales, and Bessie, who claimed Rocco as a dependent, paid $96.43 in spite of having an estimated income of over $1 million per year. That same year, charges were brought against Perry for the deaths of 17 people who'd perished drinking his alcohol, but he managed to wiggle out of that one getting away scot-free. A side note, thousands of people died during Prohibition from drinking tainted, unregulated alcohol that had been manufactured improperly. The RCMP desperately wanted to put Perry away, in 1927, just like his American counterpart Al Capone, Rocco Perry and his wife were brought up on charges of tax evasion on the cash they'd been earning by way of their various criminal operations. Perry and Starkman testified in another tax evasion case and were later charged with perjury for lying on the stand. In a plea bargain, the charges were dropped against Starkman. Perry served five months of a six-month sentence and was released on September 27, 1928. Charges were brought against Perry again on August 2nd, 1930, for illegal possession of 10 gallons of liquor. But nine days later, he was acquitted. Eleven days after that, tragedy struck and Rocco's worst nightmare came true. 
over the past couple of years, as it was looking like the states would soon repeal prohibition and the heat was on in a big way, the cross-border trade in illegal alcohol began to drop off significantly. Bessie and Rocco looked to greener pastures and began to ramp up the narcotics smuggling and sales branches of their operation. This brought with it more danger and more dangerous characters who were even more willing to kill to corner the market. From the Dictionary of Canadian Biography, quote, Apparently, Bessie was the leader in making deals. In June 1929, with hundreds of dollars in her purse, she showed up at a house in Toronto in the midst of a drug raid by the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. With no other evidence, they released her, but her appearance prompted an undercover operation by Sergeant Frank Zanath. At one point, she met Zanath, who was acting as a Chicago drug dealer in a roadhouse. There was no deal, and the operation went nowhere. I guess Bessie was a little more savvy. It was on October 13, 1930, that the partnership of Bessie Starkman and Rocco Perry came to a screeching halt in a hail of gunfire. From Biography.ca, quote, On 13 August 1930, Bessie was killed by shotgun blasts as she and Rocco were leaving the garage of their home. Her funeral on the 17th, the day after the opening in Hamilton of the first British Empire Games, was an unruly scene. Thousands of spectators attempted to break through police lines at the house and later at the small Jewish cemetery south of Hamilton. And an investigation by the Ontario Provincial Police concluded that Bessie's arrogance was the probable underlying motive for her murder, but that still left a number of suspects. It was clear that she had angered members of the Perry gang by ordering them around and refusing to pay expenses. Three theories emerged. She'd been shot by disgruntled members of the gang acting alone. She had broken enough mob customs that Rocco Perry had acquiesced in her murder. And she had reneged on a drug deal with gangsters from Rochester, New York, who had shot her. No arrests were made. Her estate went to Rocco and her two married children, Lillian Scheim and Gertrude Maidenberg. End quote. Bessie's life was recounted in the play Bootlegger's Wife that was staged several times during Hamilton's Fringe Festival in 2014. She's also been featured in walking tours on Hamilton's dark history. Prohibition in the U.S. came to an end in 1933. It was repealed by the 21st Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. In the meantime, Rocco Perry had continued on, this time with another woman named Annie Newman. She was helping him with his business, but after Bessie, he never reached the heights he had before his mental and physical health dropped off as sharply as the demand for bootleg booze had when Prohibition was repealed. Between 1937 and 1939, Rocco Perry went legit and turned to running a brewery in Toronto. He still had enemies, though, and two attempts were made on his life. On March 20, 1938, his veranda was destroyed by dynamite that had been placed underneath it. And on November 23, a bomb under his car detonated. Perry was not injured in either attempt. Perry was arrested by the Canadian government along with his brother Mike in 1940. The pair were seen as potentially dangerous enemy aliens with alleged connections to Benito Mussolini's fascist regime. With many other Italians suspected of similar leanings, Rocco and his brother were sent to Camp Petawawa as part of the Italian-Canadian internment during the Second World War. They were released from the internment camp in October of 1943 and returned to Toronto. Perry had fallen far when he was last seen alive in Toronto on April 23, 1944. He'd been working as a doorman at a local theatre. Speculation was that Perry had been murdered and dumped into the bay in Hamilton, wearing some variant of cement shoes, finally paying some unknown debt. 
he'd made some enemies with long memories. In 1992, evidence into Perry's disappearance was uncovered by mafia expert Antonio Nicasso. A letter shared with the author by Perry's cousin in Italy dated June 10, 1949, and translated from Italian read, Dear cousin, with this letter, I will tell you that I am in good health. Let them know I am fine if you've heard the news. It was signed, Rocco Perry. Perry's cousin also claims that the gangster died in 1953 in Messina, New York. In 2018, Perry's relatives from Hamilton in Australia, during an attempt to collect on the late mobster's estate, claimed that he had lived in Messina under the name Giuseppe Portalesi before dying of natural causes in 1953. The group's spokesman, Andrew Monterosso, said that Perry had made a good living through legal ventures such as the ownership of properties in the U.S. and Mexico. We're unable to verify any of this. Well, what really happened to Canada's bootleg king? Who knows? I'm aware of a few families back in Nova Scotia whose history includes stories of grandparents and great-grandparents' involvement in rum running and how rum running gave them a leg up during a tough time in history. As I was researching this episode, I was reminded of the resurgence of the same ideas that led to prohibition are similar to the ones that fueled Nixon's, quote, war on drugs, culminating in the creation of the Drug Enforcement Agency and later First Lady, First Lady Nancy Reagan's Just Say No campaign. It didn't work in the 20s, it didn't work in the 70s, and it's not working now. Demonizing and outlawing any substance does nothing to remove the demand for that substance, leaving questionable characters willing to fill the gaps in supply and creates more crime. We're seeing more and more nations and some U.S. states decriminalizing and even legalizing formerly illegal substances, usually starting with cannabis. Legalization brings these substances into the light and out of the shadows where governments can tax their use and better control the supply with another goal being the removal of the necessity of black market operators to prove to provide supply, many of whom are connected in some way to organized crime. There are still a few kinks in the system, but things appear to be headed in a more positive direction. I wouldn't be surprised to see more substances legalized or at the very least decriminalized very soon. So what's the next drug to be decriminalized? The best candidate appears to be the naturally occurring hallucinogen, psilocybin, which is produced by more than 200 types of fungi. Often referred to as magic mushrooms since the early 2000s, psilocybin has been tested on patients suffering from anxiety disorders, major depression, and various addictions. It has shown favorable results. According to an article on compasspathways.com, in 2018, the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, granted breakthrough therapy designation for psilocybin-assisted therapy for treatment-resistant depression. According to BusinessWire in 2019, the FDA again granted breakthrough therapy designation for psilocybin therapy treating major depressive disorder. It seems that as more and more substances are decriminalized, society is leaning more toward treating the underlying causes of drug abuse rather than punishing the users. Hopefully that trend continues. And that's it for Dark Poutine episode 172, Prohibition, Canadian Rum Runners and Bootleggers. So what are your thoughts, Matthew? Uh, so it, we've now heard from about uh, uh, Randell, Captain Jack Randell, and now Perry. Rocco Perry and yeah. Bessie Starkman. So if Randell was Han Solo, yeah, uh, Perry was like Jabba the Hutt. Totally. Um, 
I think, but I think what's interesting is both of these stories sort of shows what happens, like you said, when you try to make something illegal. Mm -hmm. um, but my belief that is that the real culprits, the real bad guys, were our own government. Yeah, uh, you know me, Mike, right? Mm -hmm. um, and you know that I think generally that we are governed by the least of us. Yeah. <laughs> and before anyone in the audience gets their knickers in the knot, I'm bipartisan in my disdain for government. Right. <laughs> it's on both sides. Yeah. And I've actually done a number of speeches across Canada about this very subject. Oh, interesting. Um, so let me take you through a few key facts about prohibition of cannabis. Do Fair enough. Know? Let's do that. Okay. So you might know, but as early as like 4,000 BC, onwards, cannabis was used in societies all over the world. Yep. Take it all the way up to um, the early 1900s. Mm -hmm. You can actually buy cannabis out of the Sears or the Eaton's uh, catalogs. Right, yep. And then came the Hundred Year War. Okay. So about um, 1920. Yep. So there was this huge anti-cannabis backlash that started in North America. Mm -hmm. It was rooted in racism disestablishmentarianism, anti-disestablishmentarianism, conservatism, and puritanism. Okay, right? yep. So do you, have you heard of Emily Murphy? No. So some of our listeners might know Emily Murphy as a woman's rights activist and judge. Okay. Uh, but she was also a raging racist. So she wrote a book called The Black Candle. Oh, no. And in it, she says, aliens of color have formed a drug syndicate called The Ring to bring about the downfall of the white race. Oh, boy. Uh, she was so influential that in 1923, with no debate in Parliament, Canada became the first, one of the first countries to actually criminalize cannabis. We did it before America. Wow. And then in the 1920s onwards, there was uh, an increasing cultural influence, um, especially with jazz and swing mm -hmm. by African Americans. And the plant was then defined as a, quote, black problem, leveraging racist uh, ideas of the other as less than the good white you know, Americans. Wow. Uh, in 1938, Harry Asslinger. Asslinger. <laughs> um, he was the commissioner for the American Federal Bureau of Narcotics in mm -hmm. a speech to Congress. And yes, this was a speech in Congress that has been recorded, like okay. written where he successfully got con Congress to make cannabis illegal, said, and I quote, there, there are 100,000 total marijuana smokers in the U.S., most of them Negroes, Hispanics, Filipinos, and entertainers. Their, sat their satanic music, jazz and swing, result from marijuana use. This marijuana causes white women to seek sexual relations with Negroes, entertainers, and any others. And he goes on with language that I'm not going to right. use. Yeah, let's not. For um, not to offend my friends. Mm -hmm. um, so even the word marijuana was leveraged to be fear-mongering words. So in the 1940s, many Mexican workers went up to the U.S. to help uh, with a labor shortage at the time. Yep. And during this period of time, cannabis was replaced by the Spanish word marijuana by detractors and government officials to make, uh. to make it sound more foreign and to help represent Mexicans as drug-fueled thieves, killers, and rapists. Wow. Bad hombres, as Donald yeah. Trump refers to them. And uh, actually, the, the Canadian Cannabis Act uses the word marijuana through, disdainfully throughout. In 1972... The, in Canada, the, the Dane Commission under Pierre Trudeau came out in favor of amending legislation, um, but just really kind of slightly softened regulations. Mm -hmm. um, but in June 1971, you mentioned this, the USA went the other way. 
Yeah. Nixon officially declared the oh. war on drugs, yeah. stating that drugs are public enemy number one and formed the DEA. Yeah. Um, but listen to this. So in a 1994 interview, so it wasn't a war on drugs. It was a culture war. 1994 interview, um, Nixon's domestic chief, uh, domestic policy chief, John Ehrlichman, who actually implemented all of this, yeah. said, and I quote, we knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war on, against the war or blacks, but by getting the public to associate the hippies and blacks with marijuana and then criminalizing it heavily, we could disrupt those communities, we could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about drugs? Of course we did. Wow. 1980s and 90s, you mentioned this, the Reagans, right? Just, yep. just say no. Just say no. Fronted by Nancy and the Girl Scouts of America. That's right. Seemingly whole, wholesome, yep. but backed by hugely expanded and militarized DEA with billions in funding. Right. Right. So the war on drugs really was uh, a war on cannabis. 90% of all arrests were cannabis related. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't cocaine. It wasn't heroin. 90% of the war on drugs was cannabis. And the war on drugs was actually a war on blacks. Uh, black people are four times more likely to be arrested and convicted on cannabis charges than whites. Yeah. Canada was no much better. It was three times. Yep. So what happened was in the 2000s and 2010s, mm -hmm. the internet and social media started empowering people. Yep. Increasing news coverage of uh, potential use of cannabis for medical use to make, uh, made cannabis more benign. People became tired of the war, the economic toll, the lives lost through the ever-increasingly harsh sentencing, and people became aware of the racial imbalance. So in Canada, uh, medical use was legalized in 2001, and on October 17th, 2018, Canada officially congratulated drugs on winning the war on drugs. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and we are where we are now. So as you said, there have been some kinks, um, but you know, in my opinion, true north, strong, and free is a little bit... Uh, truer and freer since legalization there so that's that's the background it's actually a horrible horrible racist background of why cannabis was made illegal. not at all surprised i was yeah. aware of the uh of it targeting blacks in in the united states but i wasn't aware as much of it here but yeah it's all the same and those idea. are like direct quotes that were written down from like congress and parliament yeah. it's just insanity Can it you is imagine? it is unpleasant yeah do you have any more thoughts on Rocco Perry? <laughs> I, you know, I went to college in Hamilton. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So. Hammertown. Hammertown. Yep. Um, you know, he was a gangster. It's, yeah. you know, he filled the void when, you know, when it was, the prohibition came in. Sure. And that's just what's going to happen. Right. And, uh, I don't know. Do you think he died? Do you think he just took off? I don't, I, I don't know. I, I have a feeling he's at the bottom of, some bay, you know, in Hamilton. a bunch of bones in, in a cement, uh, barrel. Yeah. Never, yeah. Never to be found. Never to be found. I don't know. Um, it hasn't been proven legally that he mm. was alive. So yeah. who knows? Who knows? Yeah. Interesting cat. His wife was kind of cool. So the, the, the Well, that's the thing. She was the brains of the yeah, operation. She's like the first female mob boss, really. Yeah. Like, I think she... It's funny, she was really the mob boss. 
yes, more, more she, than she he de- was. She right? definitely was. I mean, yeah. he was the muscle, right? Yeah. Like yeah. he was the muscle and connections and she was the brains. She, she was the one getting things done as far as the business. Yeah. She was even making some of the deals. Yeah. So pretty fascinating stuff. Yeah. And, uh, I guess empowering for women who want to become criminals. <laughs> There's your new hero girls. <laughs> there, there you go. <laughs> Bessie Starkman. Uh, and that's it. So there you go. I guess it's on to uh, some voicemails. I guess I should have listened to some voicemails before we started this nonsense. But, oh, it's going to be a nice surprise. But my computer was acting like a turd. Your computer is an asshole. You need a new one. <laughs> it really, it really is. <laughs> um, apparently it takes 20 minutes to a half hour to boot. Uh, an iMac from it's like, 2012. It's like a 19 or 2017. It's like a 1970s television that my brother and I turned it on 10 minutes before Scooby Doo started because it had, had to warm up. Warm up because <laughs> the colors were bad. I had a TV uh, when in 1992 three. Is that your when, first TV? Well, the first TV that <laughs> the first TV that I owned here in British Columbia. And uh, my friend had given it to me because he felt bad for me because I really didn't have anything. So he, he gives me this TV mm. and, uh, the TV had, you know, TV shows color in RGB, red, green, blue. Well, let's just say the green and the blue were kind of a little less than the R. Okay. So everybody was red. Everybody, wow. Everybody was bright red on the TV all the time. Everyone's sunburned. Yeah. Everybody was horribly, horribly sunburned, but oh, well, such is life. Well, let's listen to some interesting voicemails. Here's one from Texas. Hi, this is Elizabeth from Texas. I just wanted to say I love you guys and I love Matt. Also, if I ever come to Canada, I would love to be a coast host on the show. It would be a lot of fun. Anyways, hope you guys have a great day. Go shit in your hat. Bye. Yay. Well, that what what a, what a great voice. She should come up and co-host with us. She should come up and co-host yeah. with us. But uh, that would mean I'd have to tell listeners where I live. And that is, uh, that that in a way, uh, no offense, Elizabeth, I don't know you, but that's a little scary to me at times. Like, Oh, she sounds friendly. Yeah. Yeah. I don't need any of the, uh, you've seen Misery, right? The Stephen King. <laughs> I'm your number one fan. Yeah. We're not saying that she's your number one fan. I don't need anybody to hobble me. <laughs> you did a good job of that yourself. Yeah. Yeah. I did that with uh, eating too much. <laughs> I hobbled myself. <laughs> oh dear. But, uh, but yes, um, I, I think we should maybe have a guest host now and again. With a Texan accent would be awesome. M- Matthew, are you open to having other people come o- come over as well? We can set up another microphone. Absolutely. Do you have another microphone? I do. I have two more. Great. Yeah. We can, we can, we can, we can do, do a, that. we can do a pan, pan hosting. Pan, woof. Okay, I don't even, I don't understand what you're saying. <laughs> I'm just confused. <laughs> I don't know. I, was thinking I just of, think of Pan, the guy from... Uh, I was thinking that Pansexual kind of opened everyone. Oh, okay. <laughs> I was thinking of Pan like the uh, the guy the, from Hercules. The guy with the flute. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, no. Here I'm, it is, Herc, here it is. Actually, I think three hosts would be fun. It could be. It could also be noisy. No, I think it'd be good. It's uh, lighten the load of me trying to carry your show. Oh. <laughs> you can take that out. I was just joking. <laughs> I won't take that out because I need people to hear how badly you abuse me. Uh, it was only because we're good friends. 
Oh, boy. <laughs> so uh, here's one from Arkansas. I always like to pronounce that when I was a kid, Arkansas. Me too. But uh, because I'm not an American, I didn't understand that it was wrong. So here is someone from Arkansas. Hi, this is Willow. I'm from Conway, Arkansas, and I have been listening for about a year now. I am obsessed with the show, and I just wanted to put put out there that I think that Matt should get, like, tenure or whatever. Like, he should definitely be a permanent member of the show. I love his commentary, and he's great. Um, this is – it's very hard for my sweet southern heart to say this, but t- go take a shit in your hat, and y'all have a good day. Lulu, thank you. <laughs> well, there we go. Um, yeah, it's – uh. Like we've said, it's not easy for some people to be rude and tell us to go shit in our hat, but it's not rude. It's like, have a nice day to Canadians. So, <laughs> you know, you're going to get the Americans coming up here as tourists. So, trying, Thank I, you. Go, go shit in your hat. It's like, <laughs> I know what you guys like to say. I like, I, I'm, I, I know you're, you're just waited on my table and I want to say, go shit in your hat. <laughs> Oh boy. And I don't think anybody from the U.S. actually talks like I just spoke. No. Uh, you, you're, it's called a caricature. You're, yes, you do caricature accents. Yes, yes I do. Um, here's one from Down Under. It's probably from some nice lady or a nice man. We'll see. G'day. This is Carl from Melbourne, Australia. Um, yeah, I'm just giving you a call, maybe so I can hear what you say on your voicemail, which is as awesome as your, your show, because uh, I really love your show. Anyway, around here, perhaps we wear a, a curtain. I can't find anything that rhymes with that, but then go take a shit in your curtain. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers. So there you go. I want to go to Melbourne. I want to go to Melbourne too. It, I, I, I hear it's the design capital of Australia. Oh, well, there you yes. go. That's the place for you. And yeah. for me, actually. Lot, I love a lot design. Of, a lot of artists in Melbourne from what I was told. Melbourne. Melbourne. Interesting. Melbourne. Well, there you go. That's it for voicemails. You can leave us one at one 327 5786 or one 877 D-A-R-K-P-T-N. If your call stands out, you might hear it on the show. So before we continue, before we move on, at the beginning of the show, I mentioned that I have a little bit of an announcement to make. And that announcement is... Your book. My book. We're ready to reveal the title, the cover, and the release date for my book. So... The name of the book is Murder... Madness and Mayhem, 25 Tales of True Crime and Dark History. And it's available this November from HarperCollins. I'll have a link where you can go and see the cover for yourself. And we'll be revealing the cover on uh, social media as well. So you'll see it there. But they did some cute little videos. HarperCollins did some cute little videos for the different platforms that we're going to be sharing that on. And they included some audio in it. So let's play the audio of the cover reveal, uh, that you will see online on various, uh, social media channels Monday, the day that this is released. (laughs) 
I'm so happy. <laughs> That's so fun. It's awesome. It is fun. So yeah, there you go. My book is coming. Again, that is Murder, Madness, and Mayhem, 25 Tales of True Crime and Dark History, available this November, and you can pre-order now at the link that we're going to share. So proud of you. Proper publishing house as well. A proper publishing house. Grew up with, you know, so many Harper Collins all my life. They right? They do a good job, and that's awesome what they did there. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's pretty neat. And once you see it, you'll understand it. Uh, so there you go. It is time to move on to Patreon. Patreon. Because people are patrons of the show and we love them. We do. We love people who aren't patrons of the show, but we love anyone who will listen to us. Go, <laughs> go on, go on and on. <laughs> so first up, we have a prime minister, a new Ooh. prime minister of dark poutine, Gail Parker from Abilene, Texas. Hello, Gail. Gail Parker from Abilene, I'm Texas. Stopping the- <laughs> yeah, I'm sure like people will be like, I don't sound like that. Thank you, Gail. No, I sound like that. I'm not saying yeah. Gail sounds like yeah. that. I'm welcoming her. Okay. Heartily. So what does Gail do there in Abilene, Texas? She is a stable master. Okay. What kind of a stable of what? Horses. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Because there's lots of horses in Texas. And cowboys to yeah. ride them. And cowgirls. Yeah, yeah, cow it, people. It, cow persons. It would be Cow good. them. It would be... So cool to like just work with horses all day, wouldn't it? It really would. Yeah. Horses scare me a little bit because they're so large mm. and they tend to be skittish. You know, when I was a kid, I wanted to take riding lessons and we couldn't afford it. So I became a stable boy in lieu of getting paid and I got some... Um, to ride horses. Riding lessons. Well, that's nice. Yeah. yeah. There you go. Next up we have from Jefferson City, Missouri. Okay. Jennifer King. Hello, Jennifer King. Thank you. And what does Jennifer King do there in Jefferson City? I think Jefferson City was one of those shoot 'em up cowboy places too, if I remember correctly. Okay. I don't know. I'm she, just making things up. She's a futurist. What does she futurize? Well, anything really. She looks for signs and everything, right? Mm-hmm. And, and she knows that the future is already here. It's just not yet evenly distributed. Right. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. And so there's, what, what does she think is on the horizon? Uh, besides that crappy looking electric truck from Tesla. <laughs> well, you know, she called, she called Uber. Okay. You know, she knew that Uber and, um, all of these other sort of, uh, because, because of eBay, she looked at eBay and she thought all that eBay has done is essentially created a system where you can trust strangers to sell you stuff. Mm. Right. And so she called you know, you know, Uber, Uber Eats, all the order things where you give people ratings. Sure. So she totally called that. I, I, she hasn't told me what, what, what she sees coming. Of course not, because she wants to invest in it. Yeah. Some of yeah. it, some of that it's makes neg- sense. Some of it's negative, I'm sure, with the news that's happening. Well, yeah. The, yeah, like, let's, let's prevent people from voting so, in b- places. So she should call us and tell her, like, tell us, like, the good things coming up in the future. I like the good things. Yeah. Good things are, are good. Yeah. Next, we have Era McCall, and she is from good old Toronto, Ontario. Toronto, the big smoke. The big smoke, yeah. Toronto. Mm-hmm. What, isn't it Hogtown as well? Yeah, Hogtown as well. Mm. Yeah. Why Hogtown? Mm, because they, pigs. Probably, I would assume that, that there was a big 
auction place and the farmers Probably. from southwestern Ontario took there. Yeah. yeah. And so what does Era do? She is a computer repair person who you need. But <laughs> she repairs Macs yeah, specifically. She repairs Macs and I'm, can you please call Mike? And yeah. get his computer repaired. Before anybody slags me for having a Mac and not a PC, I have PCs as well. Oh, uh, yeah. It's a little bit of a, tri there's tribalism there, isn't there? Yeah. People, people are very weird about that, but I am, uh, I, I play on both sides of the fence. No, you don't. No, I, I kind of don't. <laughs> well, thank you, Era. And what does she do there in, uh. I just told you. Oh, yeah, you did. I remember what you said. Computer oh, repair yeah, person. <laughs> Next up, we have Phoebe Weber. And I don't know where Phoebe is from, but Phoebe, what a great name. That is Phoebe Weber in totality is a fantastic name. It is. Name. It rolls off the tongue. Phoebe is from Vitebsk, Belarus. Okay. Right. And, and uh, did she have to do with the Ryan airplane that was No, made? no, nothing no? like that. So, okay. so Vitebsk is on the northeast of Belarus. Yes. Uh, kind of equidistance between Riga and Moscow. We've never said the word equidistant on this show. Okay, before, well, so. there you go. It's equidistant. And did you know that Vitas Belarus is actually the hometown of Mark Chagall? Wow. And there's um, a Mark Chagall museum there, and she runs the Mark Chagall museum. Well, thank you, Phoebe, for your contribution Thanks, to Phoebe. the arts. Yes. Well, and preservation of Her name same. sounds like she has something to do with the arts, actually. Phoebe. This is Phoebe Weber uh, for the Mark Chagall Museum. Yes. Yeah, well, there you go. Thanks, Phoebe. Thanks, Phoebes. Uh, well, you're very familiar with her. Next, we have Rebecca W. And I don't know where Rebecca's from either. Rebecca is from Selangora, Malaysia. Okay. It's just outside of Kuala Lumpur. Okay. And it's famous for the Batu Caves, which is a Hindu temple built in caves. Oh, cool. And, and have you ever been there? I have never, okay. I have been to Paris. Okay. There's, there's 272 steps that go up to the caves. Okay. And these monkeys line the steps and I'm not kidding. They're little bastards. They steal shit from the tourists. So you have had stuff stolen from <laughs> my bottle, my bottle of water. Oh. And, but they take sunglasses, cameras, and she's a monkey trainer. So she's, uh, she, uh, essentially they're her monkeys and she makes a living by selling on the stuff that they steal. Well, there you go. Yeah, yeah. That's awesome. It's a great. Thank you. Thank you so much, Rebecca W. Next, we have Megan Pataski. Hello, and, Megan. And Megan is from Calgary, Alberta. Calgary. I love Calgary. Do you? Yeah. I, I like it. It's okay. It's, I don't know. I, I, I was doing work for the Calgary Theater mm -hmm. a couple of years ago. So, I don't know Calgary that so well. So I really got involved in knowing like the arts community mm -hmm. in, in Calgary. And I just, I, whenever I want, I had a good time. Well, there you go. Yeah. And what does Megan do? Does she work at the arts theater in Calgary? No, she's a, um, a, a naval officer. Well, that's pretty interesting seeing as Calgary is landlocked. So does, is there Navy boats on the Bow River there? Is that what's they, going on? They put them on trains and then. Oh, so it's like the, uh, railroad Navy. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's very creative, Matthew. I didn't know that there was such a thing. The railroad Navy. Well, thank you very much, Megan, for protecting. Thanks, Megan. For, for protecting the prairies on your railroad Navy and, ship. And give my love to Calgary, please. There you go. Uh, Alina Bothan. Hello, Alina. And I don't know where Alina, Alina is from, so... 
That's interesting. She's from Monrovia, Liberia. Wow. Okay. And what does Elena do there in Monrovia? Well, she's retired now, but she was the press secretary for Ellen Johnson Sirleaf. Okay. Have you ever heard about Ellen Johnson Sirleaf? No. Amazing woman. Okay. Uh, the first, she's president until 2018. She's the first elected female head of state in the entire continent. Wow. And she pulled the country out of war and did a lot of good things. So well, Good yeah. for her. Yeah. Sometimes, uh, you know, it takes a bit of a change to make some changes. Oh yeah. 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 Well, thank you so much, Alina. Next up we have Helena Tenhoof and Helena is from Whitehorse in Yukon Territories. Cool. Whitehorse. Whitehorse. And what does Helena do there in Whitehorse? Why is it called Whitehorse? Probably because there's a white horse at okay. some point. She tests childproof packaging. Oh, yeah. For what specific products? It's a real job. So let me, for example. Yeah. You know, I'm in the cannabis business. Yes. Uh, my cannabis packaging has to be given to something like 60 kids under 12. And if less than something like 10% of them can open it. It's childproof. We get certification that it's childproof. And the other, the other 10% get high. I guess so. <laughs> that would be horrible. It's I don't a gift. Know if, don't know if you can get high from just chewing on a butt or something but you know it, it's important um but yeah when i first learned about this i thought it was amazing so she actually does child and you know she does it for you know medicines and all kinds of other things as well well there you go yep how she, about that yeah she runs a daycare and this is like a side job because the kids are there right so wow that's great thanks helena next up we have gail hunter and Gail is from Victoria, British Columbia, just a ferry ride away. I can see the island from my window. Yeah, that really sucks. Yeah. It's got to suck the view there. So I will, I will wave at you when I get home tonight. There you go. Matthew is going to wave at Gail Hunter when he arrives home. Mm -hmm. um, and what does Gail do with her time over there in Victoria besides waving back to Matthew? Gail is a Zen garden designer. Oh, so, you know, the, the big garden over there? Yeah. What's it called? The. Uh, it is Butchart Gardens. Butchart Gardens. So yep. she, she runs the Zen garden section. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Neat. Yeah. She studied in Kyoto. Ah. I love Zen gardens. I do too. I just don't have the patience. <laughs> Tee See what I did there? Next up. And lastly, for this week, we do have more. We're just still catching up. We have Lindsay Lesage. Lindsay Lesage. And Lindsay. Lindsay Lesage. Unsure where Lindsay is from. Lindsay mm -hmm. is from Lindsay, Ontario. Okay. And yeah. what does Lindsay do in Lindsay? She's a park ranger. Okay. She parks Range Rovers for um, wealthy people. Wow. Yeah. So <laughs> that's, I didn't know that was a job. Yeah, park ranger. So there you go. Thank you, everybody. Thank you so much to all our patrons, past and present. And future. And future. Uh, hey, oh, maybe no, maybe a friend who's a futurist can tell us who the future Patreons will be. Maybe. I forgot. We have to do donut money donors. Donuts. That's donuts. Go nuts for donuts. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we had donuts earlier. Matthew brought donuts. Proper um, ones. Proper donuts. And they were yum, yum, yum. So first up we have from Katrina Hockey. 
someone's last name is Hockey. I don't know if that's a real last name, but that is kind of cool. Katrina Hockey. Yeah. And she says, thanks for an amazing true crime podcast. I was born and raised in Nova Scotia and moved to Maine as an adult. I love having true crime podcast with a Canadian host. I love the maritime accent. Sloppy kissed from your dark poutine Aww. barnyard friend, Vito. Vito. Be- best wishes from Vito's mom, Katrina. Well, thanks, thanks Katrina. Thanks, Katrina. That's great. And what does Katrina do there in Maine besides get sloppy kisses from Vito? She also works on Murder, She Wrote. What? Yeah. Anyone from Maine works on Murder, She Wrote. Oh, okay. Even though it was filmed in California. Right. Yeah. Maybe she's a consultant about she, the things in Maine. Yeah. Yeah. She's the main consultant. Oh, boo. <laughs> I see what you did there. Oh, it cracked me up. Our friend, Harry Sims. Hello, Harry uh, Sims. Good friend, Harry Sims from California says, I heard you're going through a little financial pinch, so I thought I'd share some abundance. Love the show. As we would say in NorCal, take a steamy in dot, your dot, beanie. dot, steamy in your beanie. <laughs> take a steamy in your beanie. So there you go. Well, thank, thank you. Thank Harry. Thanks, Harry. Harry is a great guy. He and I have had a few chats sort okay. of off the, off the beaten path. And right. Yeah. He's, he's a really good egg. Uh, became a new dad throughout the pandemic. Wow. You know, so, uh, yeah. Thanks, Harry. Thanks, Harry. Much appreciated. And our final donut money donor this week is Nicole Tweddle. And oh. Nicole says, hi, M&M. Oh, wow. Ooh, we've, we're we've, the M&M we've, meat we're shop. The M&M. <laughs> I just had to send some donut money after you had me nearly spitting out my coffee the other week <laughs> with Matthew's <laughs> DP comment. <laughs> I'm really enjoying the two of you together and hope Matthew moves from guest host to permanent host. I think it's happened. Oh, and please <laughs> don't forget to get a treat for Steve. Oh, thank you. Nicole. Uh, wow. Thanks, Thanks Nicole. Thanks, Nicole. And I think we should just make a thing of you being the guest host forever. Yeah. I don't know. Just for fun. Just The like forever guest never, host. Never make you official. Yeah. I'm a little skittish about making anyone an official host after the time that I've- Fair had. enough. But, uh, hey, I'm just, I'm happy to be here. And in all honesty, seeing you every Sunday yeah. is like, it's just fun. So well, thanks. I'll, I'll keep coming. I appreciate that. All right. Uh, thank you to all our patrons and donut money donors, past, present, and future for your generosity. <laughs> it helps to keep the show going. You could become a patron of Dark Poutine at patreon.com slash darkpoutine. Or for a one-time donation, you can send us donut money via PayPal at our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. If you don't already subscribe to the show, it'd mean a lot to us if you did. You can easily find Dark Poutine on iTunes podcast, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, or wherever you get your on-demand audio. Check out our website, darkpoutine.com for show notes and other cool stuff. Please take the time to give Dark Poutine a like or a follow on Facebook and Instagram. Most importantly, thank you for listening and tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. Until we return, don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Pod a bad apple. Exactly.
new on Showcase. You were in a concentration camp in World War II. I was a young man locked up in a terrible place. Based on the international best-selling book. But I found something there. Someone. We must keep living. Whatever it takes. The Tattooist of Auschwitz. All new Sundays on Showcase. Stream on Stack TV.